Just a warning, this episode may contain language or topics that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. Karen Booz was convicted of arson and first-degree murder of her 14-year-old daughter, Robin, in 2003. What started as an ordinary day in July of 2002 turned out to be a nightmare for Karen Booz and her family. Immediately after Robin's death, Karen was seen as the prime suspect and was interrogated by detectives, ATF agents, and her neighbor, who was the police chief. The interrogation went on for over 12 consecutive hours, eventually leading into an internalized false confession. Karen eventually believed, based on what the detectives and the agents had told her about the scene of the crime, that she was the one who committed the arson in a dream or unconscious state. After exhausting all appeals, the Innocence Clinic of the University of Michigan Law School took up Karen's case in 2021. It took a lot of effort, but we were able to get in touch with Karen Boos. Karen is currently incarcerated in a women's prison in Southeast Michigan. We had a really deep conversation with Karen about that day, July 30th, 2002, a bit about the case, the false confession, and her life in prison. We spoke to Karen over the phone, and the recording is pretty good, but you might need to listen closely. So... Without further ado, let's just jump right into it. Thanks so much, Karen and Dave, for speaking with us today. Yeah. Thank you. Karen, I'm from Michigan, so how, how are things? How, how's the weather there today? It's really pleasant. It's a beautiful summer day. It's been perfect from morning till now. So hi, Karen. Um, my name is Zoe. I'm the other host of uh, the okay. podcast. I wanted to start off with what happened the day of the fire. Well, let's see. Uh, I got up and just went downstairs. Bedrooms were upstairs. And just started doing daily things that I do in the morning, you know, getting things around and whatnot. And um, I was going to go shopping with my girlfriend that morning. So we were um, going to get ready for that. But I had some stuff I wanted to do. And, we were going to go on vacation, so I wanted to get ready for that. Just some stuff in the house. And so I was downstairs working and getting ready. And I didn't see Robin at all that morning. I heard her up. I heard her walking around in her bedroom to the bathroom and whatnot. And flush the toilet and different stuff. She was just putzing around. So... Anyway, um, she didn't come back down. I didn't, I assumed she probably went back to bed, but I didn't know what she was doing at all. So I just kind of, I left when I was supposed to leave to go with my girlfriend to go shopping and picked her up. And then we started riding to Grand Rapids. We had a few stops in between the started riding to Grand Rapids, and then we got to Payless Shoes on 
28th Street, and my cell phone rang to, with my son, and he told me that the house, our home was on fire. And I said, well, last I knew about them was in there. Is she in there yet? They couldn't locate her. So they kept trying to find her and couldn't. Then he said he'd call me back. And we, well, we turned around right away. Immediately we turned around and not just came home, but raced home. Um, I was a hot, I was really a mess. And um, my driving wasn't good and I was going too fast, of course. But um, so my girlfriend made me stop the truck and she got in and drove. And then we proceeded to come to Zealand, back where I live. And the streets were blocked off about two blocks before we got to my home and jumped out of the truck and but we couldn't go any farther. And then I told them that, you know, I was the person that lived in that house. And uh, so they let me through. So I got to the house and they had determined that Robin was in there. And I went, I just went crazy. And I just, I did everything I could to rush in there to get her. And it was futile. There were too many people around. They were holding me down. And I wasn't able to get in to get it get into her. The house was on fire and my husband was over by the house with the firefighters. Anyway, I I got pretty pretty wild or pretty bad and they ended up giving me a shot of Valium because they couldn't control me because I wanted, you know, was determined to go in the house. And anyway, then I remember Seeing my husband's face, they brought, I see in my husband's face and I knew that something had happened or that it wasn't good. And then I saw them bring Robin out on a stretcher. I just fell apart. I just, I have no other. I remember, and um, screaming or wailing, let's put it that way, and that was a sound that I had never heard before. It was so mournful, it was awful, but anyway, it was, uh, since I've been here in prison, I've heard that sound a couple times, one time in particular, a good friend had answered the phone and her son had died. And it's just, it's an animal sound. And it just brought all that right back to me. You know, that day was not good. So I think I, we went over to my in-laws house. Not sure how we got there, how I got there. And then the police came and they questioned me, started questioning me. And... Of course, I didn't suspect anything at all. I mean, I just, I figured they're just, you know, doing their job, whatever. And um, they asked me to come in to the police station later on and write a statement, and I did. And then I came back to my in-laws house, probably, I don't know how long it took to write the statement. and. Things just escalated from there as far as them pulling me in to question me. And I was questioned, I think, four or five, I'm not real sure, I think four different times. And but a whole to total of like 21 and a half hours. It was just very, very lengthy. The one time was super lengthy and grueling. It was a very grueling interviewer interrogation. I didn't get an attorney, which was a 
was just plain stupid on my part. But in my naivety, I really believe that, you know, I knew I didn't do anything wrong. And I wanted to find out what happened to my daughter, Robin. And the police said that was their main concern, too, to find out what happened to my daughter. So, And I trusted them. And uh, I knew the chief of police that was uh, of our little town. I knew him really good from church and from babysitting his kids. And our kids hung around together and stuff. And so I just trusted Anybody that ever gets in a situation like this, I, my first advice would be, especially if you're innocent, get an attorney, get counsel before you even speak a word. When I got arrested, probably about, a, I'm not real sure how long afterwards, maybe a month, month, month and a half, I'm not real sure of the time there. To go back, to what you had said about the advice that you would give is ask for a lawyer. Curious as to what prompted you to go to the police station to speak with law enforcement that day? They kept questioning me and kept pulling me on to be questioned. And I just did not think there was... I. I just figured they were trying to help me figure out what, what happened with my daughter. What happened to my daughter that morning. Just totally naive. It was just not a good thing. Didn't even think about getting an attorney, you know, for a few of the interviews or interrogation that I had because I had nothing to hide. And I knew that I just had nothing to nothing there that could incriminate me. It just was not part of my thought process at all. I was just determined to find out what happened that morning. We've talked to other people, you know, in similar situations where they did the same thing. They thought that, you know, speaking to law enforcement, because, you know, they, they figured... I'm telling the truth. I have nothing to hide, right? And then they go and tell the truth. And then they they realize that it doesn't always work out the way that they think it will. And it's it's a shame. But how did the Innocence Clinic take up your case? Well, actually, it's been quite a long process. But when I first got incarcerated, then a woman and a student came to visit me in prison and they told me, they said, we believe you're innocent and we'd like to help you. I had to go through the process of the court appeals and I had attorneys. My parents hired decent attorneys and so then, and they, U of M offered to help background and my attorneys didn't take them up on I think they probably thought they had a good case and it was going to be done, you know, I don't know, I don't know why. Then I, uh, about uh, 2017, I should say 2015, so a lady got a hold of me from Los Angeles and she was going to put together a show for Netflix. She asked if I would interview for her show. I, I first said yeah once I found out a little bit more about it. And so then we, we did that, did the show, and that aired in 2017. And shortly after that, U of M picked up my case. And I couldn't be more grateful. Oh, my gosh. I just couldn't have anybody better helping me out. I just don't. Uh, I'm just so blessed. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, thank you, Karen. We're very, very uh, proud to represent you. I'm, I'm really glad that University of Michigan has picked it up. So what could you tell us a little bit about the current status or the progress that they have made in your case? Well, they have done over five years of them. I think it's about that, Dave. 
parents said, we, we did pick up the case after Kelly Lavenberg put together a series, the confession tapes, one of the episodes featuring Karen's case. But he did spend quite a bit of time investigating both the, the fire, um, the way in which the interrogation was conducted, interrogation of Karen was conducted, and also subsequently what happened to one of the fire investigators, the, the main fire investigator who testified against Karen was subsequently discredited. But where we are is that we filed a motion for relief from judgment a year ago, and we've been waiting for the prosecution to finish filing their answer, and that's going to happen. Their due date is July 18th, so next Monday. And then after that, then we'll be moving for an evidentiary hearing and hopefully holding a hearing where we'll be calling our expert witnesses and the prosecution may be calling expert witnesses of their own. Yeah, and they have, you have found Innocence Clinic has just gotten hold of some of the best people that renowned in the United States that uh, get on my case and help out and just went above and beyond. Just very diligent, the students and the attorneys there, or Dave and whoever else is working there, just super diligent, always like, always working on my case and not on it, and keeping me up and telling me like in plain terms what's going on and whatnot, and what they have found, whatnot. So just have full confidence in them. That's great. It really is wonderful that there are these resources now for people that are wrongfully convicted. It's it's amazing. And so, you know, talking about, you know, the updates, uh, you know, like the, the new information that's known about fire science and investigations and, and police interrogations, I guess first, when you were being interviewed by the police, you said you didn't have really a, you know, at first you didn't know it was going to turn into an in- interrogation. Um, but at what moment did you realize that it, it was going from interview to interrogation, that that you were sort of being accused? I don't remember what interview or interrogation it was, but it was the lengthy one. There was one that was super, super long, and that was in Grand Haven. Man, did a polygraph. And, and um, told me that I failed miserably, and I just was floored. I couldn't believe it. And I says, I don't believe that's true. You know, that can't be true because that's just not, not what's in me. <laughs> I don't know how that would come out like that. And um, so anyway, they kept interrogating me and um, or interviewing me. Told me many things that were falsehood really messed with my head a lot big time made me start believing that maybe oh maybe something did happen and I don't know you know they just they kept pounding 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 that into me and kept giving me scenario after scenario of what they what could have happened and let's see close your eyes and let's picture what happened and here, and they're moving along, and and then you did this next, and did you see this? And it was there, <laughs> and I just I went along with their little games, you know, and because I really wanted to figure out what was going on, but shortly after it got going, like after the uh, polygraph, I did ask our chief of police, Chief Olney, Bill Olney, if I needed to get um, an attorney. And he says, no, I don't think so at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's just one of those things. Like, I mean, you know, you don't know until, you know, later, but yeah, getting an attorney is always... You know, now, I mean, everybody knows this, but, you know, like, I mean, in terms of, you know, what we know about interrogations and police interviews, you know, getting an attorney is, is integral. 
And then when it comes to the fire investigation, the claims that were made by prosecution, and even when it comes to the claims made by the police, how, how did all that make you feel? I was just flabbergasted. And the story they put together, it just was not something that took place in my life. And so it was, I was just sitting there thinking that's just one lie after another. And and I knew this. I was really, really just taken aback that they were accusing me of something so horrendous. I just, I adore my kids. I adored Robin. And um, there'd be no way I'd never even hit her. I just, I would not hurt my daughter ever. Thing like that. One thing about your story that I think we want to bring up is the town of Zealand. What is Zealand like? What's the culture of the town? I live in a very conservative community and pretty tight knit. And pretty tight knit and um, very religious, very self righteous. Anyway, I did not fit in that mold. <laughs> so I went. I went to church just like everybody else did and whatnot, but I was I was an alcoholic. And anyway, throughout that time, throughout my married years, I did have an affair. And, of course, all this stuff came out during the trial or before trial. And I just looked like the harlot that I was, you know. And, and a lot of people in my town have a lot of issues, but everything is kept in the closet. For this stuff to be brought out was just, it was just all taboo. The that I felt like I was a part of, it's, they turn, it's like they turned on me. And um, I felt like they, how could they not know me and know that I, you know, wouldn't ever do anything like this. But the marks against me were just too much. I think I was just really judged a lot by that. Even though the affair had nothing to do with Robin's death or anything. But um, everything came out in the public. And I was just condemned. I had a lot of people standing behind me. A lot of people that know me, that do know me, and are still behind me. I really feel like I have a lot of support in the community. But, um, of course, there's always going to be people that are going to keep judging me. And that's okay. They have a right to do that, and I understand that. But they haven't walked in my shoes either. From what you've mentioned, Karen, about Zealand and the culture of the town, would it be safe to say that law enforcement is seen as like the supreme authority, that people are going to believe what law enforcement tells them to believe? Oh, my gosh, yes. I truly, truly believe that. The super small community. Um, and like I said, just very conservative. I believe that probably a lot of them have had a lot of the same thoughts I did. I I was brought up, my core belief was that the police are good. They're there to help me out. uh, Anything they say is a gospel truth, and you wouldn't question that. I didn't question that, and that's how I believe probably a lot of people are, you know, still in our community. I know, like, talking to my girlfriends and stuff, you know, their eyes are wide open now compared to what they were, but, you know, I used to have the belief, too, that everybody, the police arrested, they must have had enough evidence against them to arrest them. And so they had something going, and 
but they wouldn't bring them to trial if they didn't have anything solid going. But that isn't the case. And the falsehoods are, are just, um, oh, I don't know. They're hidden, of course, you know, or not hidden, but who's going to question them? I didn't, I never thought about questioning stuff like I do now today and going through the system like I did. I was in, of the full belief that, you know, they're, they're here to serve and protect me and um, going to do the right thing always. I no longer hold to that core belief. I had kind of changed. Change plot, but um, but I still have faith, and you know, I still have faith that there are good, good people out there and good police officers out there, and that justice. I do believe justice is going to come through. I'm very, very fortunate, like I said, to have. People fighting for me like they are, and not everybody gets this opportunity, and I'm very well aware of that, and just how blessed I am. But um, I think the public is not aware of the deception that is allowed in the courts and the deception that the police can convey to anybody they want to meet their needs to get to their own end. Yeah, I mean, do you do you feel like you were you were made to be a target at all, or do you think that? I mean, it's pretty clear that you know the affair and being in recovery, being an alcoholic, you know, maybe that persuaded the jury and persuaded, you know, just people in general. But do you think that that, like, do you think you were made to be a target in any way? I do, very much so. I was, a, I would believe that I was an easy target. I, they wanted to find somebody that, to blame for this, whatever it was. And uh, I think I just probably stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> Here I am, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I believe that I probably was a target. I don't believe that they questioned my husband near enough. I don't believe my husband had anything to do with this either. But they didn't bother to question him, but he's part of the good old boy system in our little town. So they didn't even bother. And what went wrong here, first thing that went wrong was the fire investigation. And... Fire investigation in the United States was revolutionized starting in the early 1990s. But unfortunately, Michigan was pretty late in adopting the new scientific approach to fire investigation. And so what we've seen is that the fire investigators who investigated this fire were still using methods that had been discredited more than a decade earlier and weren't being used in most other parts of the country. And because they were using these methods, they particularly this one flawed approach called uh, deepest char, they wrongly concluded this fire started in the hallway outside Robin's room instead of inside her room, even though they found no accelerant at all in the hallway. They found they found accelerant inside Robin's room, but they didn't find any in the hallway. But because they were blinded by their continued reliance on what were, should have been by then discredited fire investigation techniques, they had to find somebody who was responsible because what they were looking at told them that this fire was intentionally set because it was basically just started in the hallway. And so that, that's why they, they targeted Karen because she was the last person who was known to be in the house with Robin. So with all of these new fire signs techniques that have come, come to light, right, and knowing that older police interrogation tactics and older fire investigation techniques are flawed. So why do you think it's so difficult to get a court to reopen or overturn the conviction with this with this evidence? Well, I, I hope it won't be. 
and we're encouraged that the, the new judge has come come onto this case seems very interested in the new evidence that we've put forward so far. So uh, I'm I'm certainly not going to prejudge what this judge is going to do, and I hope this judge will continue to show the interest in the evidence that we found and, and will ultimately do the right thing. Why do you think in the past it's been so hard um, to, you know, to get any, any motions filed, you know, or, or, or any appeals made? Well, uh, it's, it's just very hard to overturn conviction. I can tell you as somebody who's been in the business now for 14 years of trying to overturn Conditions. We've succeeded in several dozen cases, but every one of them is is a is a struggle because the system was designed with this idea of near infallibility in mind. That uh, the dominant paradigm for decades was that criminal justice system was so good that the chances of anyone being wrongfully convicted were like being hit by a meteorite, and DNA started to show us that wasn't true. And since the era of DNA exoneration started about 30 years ago, we've had more and more convictions overturned, not only with DNA, but with other new methods and other other kinds of new evidence ever since. So what we're seeing now is that the system is somewhat more willing to admit that mistakes are made than it used to be, but it's still a, a knockdown, dragout struggle in most cases. Karen. Yeah. You, you've been incarcerated for some time. And can you tell us how have you advocated for yourself and for your innocence? What specific actions have you taken to, you know, towards your advocacy to still tell people about your innocence? I haven't went out to the public too, too much with it. Just my family and my friends and stuff, and basically have told people of my innocence, and I haven't been out there to advocate for myself. I I really didn't know of any opportunities to do so, and until more recently, and now I realize that there's a lot more people out there that are sitting finding out the truth and making some correction. And, but uh, back in the day, I didn't, yeah, I've been here 20 years. And um, for many years, I didn't have any idea that there was anybody out here. Be interested, I knew U of M was, and, you know, their hands were tied until I got through with, you know, my appeals and whatnot. And, I think that we want to do get your story out there as much as possible, as far reaching as possible. Um, so people are aware, you know, people are aware of your and even for themselves, you know, understanding what can happen. Absolutely. It can happen to anybody. It really can. Yeah, yeah. And I just truly believe that now, you know. I like I said, I was naive. I didn't watch much T V, I still don't, but to be aware that so trusting and just really believing, you know, I had these core beliefs about the police. And it really kind of shook you to your core, right? The fact that you had these thoughts about the police and law enforcement and it completely went against what you've been taught your whole life. And I, I think that is the case for a lot of a lot of people. We've spoken to a few people and each time there's like some, some similarities and the similarities are ask for a lawyer. Absolutely. That would just be the first thing. And especially if you are innocent, I just truly, I, that would just be the first thing. It happens to people that, you know, I'm an average person. I'm an average person. I was very law abiding. Not that I never broke any laws, but for the most part, I was very, very law-abiding. I still am. I follow all the rules. Just a rule follower and do everything I'm supposed to do, you know. And I'm not below intelligence. It hits 
anybody. That's what I'm trying to say. Especially probably if you're most unsuspecting, but it's not like I'm dumb or anything, you know, mm-hmm. um, or have any learning disabilities. It hits ordinary people that are just living their lives. I was just going to go and go shopping for a pair of pants that morning with my girlfriend, and <laughs> I ended up here, you know. <laughs> Karen's absolutely right that the kind of wrongful conviction she suffered is especially likely to happen to someone like her, who's not a criminal, has no experience with the criminal justice system, and generally trusts the criminal justice system and, and the police. So. She didn't confess, but by lying to her over and over again about the evidence, about the polygraph, about everything else, she was convinced that she must have done it and just couldn't remember it. And ultimately, that's that's where they got her to after hours and hours of interrogation. And then after she had time to reflect, she knew that wasn't true and came back and told them it wasn't true. But we've we've had a number of other cases in Michigan Clinic, and we've seen scores of these cases nationwide where especially traumatized people, people who are mourning, people who are frightened, are persuaded by lying, and their memory must be lost. And that's one of the most frightening forms of false confession. But once you get that, then it's very hard for the jury to understand why somebody would do that, because, of course, they weren't there. They, they weren't traumatized. They weren't put through the hours and hours of life and being told that their memory must be lost. Yeah, by the time I was, uh, I don't know how far into the interrogation, but I really started thinking that there was something mentally wrong with me and that I could not remember what was because all these lies that they were telling me, I started thinking they must be the truth. And so then I had to put together some scenarios to... And, of course, they were, they helped me work out the scenarios. Sad situation. <laughs> I didn't confess. And any time I said anything close to anything like go through the stories, and then I say, no, no, that didn't happen. But that was just made them extremely frustrated. But by the time we were done with the last interview, which was, Eleven and a half hours. I ended up going to a psychiatric ward in a hospital in Holland, and stayed there for a couple of days. So I just I knew that if I went home after that, I would try to kill myself. I I knew that was going to probably be my only possibility. I couldn't handle. So you voluntarily uh-huh. went to a psych ward. I did. Yeah. I did. Right after the marathon interrogation, where they, they tried to convince her that she must have done it in a blackout. Right. This was like 10 o'clock at night. I mean, this went on for, it started at 8.30 in the morning, and by 10 o'clock at night, that's when finally it was after dark, summertime. And, and you were grieving, so they played on your grief. Yes. Absolutely. Seven days before that, we buried Rob, and um, I couldn't keep my life together at that point, you know. And then all this slamming me—it was overwhelming. I mean, this is just a whole different kind of injustice. Preying on somebody who's grieving gaslighting them and obviously gaslighting works when when the gaslighter is held in high regard or is well respected like law enforcement in that small town right and and so some of the lies like telling karen that her fingerprints were found on the gas can uh, those are just devastating because that makes it would make somebody and it would make anybody but especially somebody in a mental state like karen was in at that point distrust her own memory and that's the thing. Police are allowed to to say these things during interviews and interrogations. It's perfectly, yeah, it's perfectly legal for them to do. Yeah. Right. And I don't believe that the public is aware of any of that, that they would even use some of those tactics and be able to use those falsehoods or lies and bring them out like that. So I certainly was not. 
I thought it was the God of the truth, and I thought that can't be, but it kept convincing me, trying to convince me that it was. And it wasn't just like one man, it was, um, I was in a small room, and at times there were three or four men in there standing up around me, trying to convince me to confess. That's really intimidating. It was very intimidating. Yes, it was. Then they'd send the polygraph guy back in, and then they send the chief of police. I kept asking for my husband. My husband didn't come in. I think he finally came in later at night. But That's an especially effective technique that the police use is the the polygraph. So, you know, most members of the public don't know that, first of all, the polygraphs are junk science, not, not admissible in court for that reason. But also that to the extent that there is anything there with a polygraph that you can't get an instant polygraph read. reading. It, reading a polygraph chart is a long, complex process. And so this was, this was a technique that we often see is like, okay, well, we'll give you a polygraph and then very shortly afterwards, they declare, well, you failed miserably, so we know you're lying. And so, so we, know that, that's a, we know that's a lie. David, is it true? I, I'm trying to remember back. This has been early on in your investigation of it, but we tried to get a hold of the polygraph, but they no longer had it. Did we that? never found it. Okay, that's what I yeah, thought. Yeah, which, um, you know, which is, it just goes leads us to believe that this is a standard police interrogation technique is sometimes they'll tell people they're taking a polygraph, but they're not even actually making charts. The whole thing is just a setup in order to tell the person later that they failed. So they don't even, they don't even make charts. They make charts, but don't even read them. So um, how is this even something that, that they're able to do and get away with? Because the courts let them get away with it because in case after case after case, courts have held that the police are free to tell the most flagrant, outrageous lies during interrogation. I mean, this is something that just kind of needs to be shouted from the rooftops, because this is not what we see in the media. Well, certainly in the legal literature, we, we know all about it. And for years, researchers have shown that these kind of lies, lies about scientific evidence, such as uh, her fingerprints being on the can lies about polygraphs are especially likely to convince people that their memories must be wrong and they must be guilty after all. And so it, it, is, a, it is a huge risk factor for false incriminating statements and wrongful convictions. And fortunately, our courts just aren't willing to stand up to the police and say, you can't do this anymore. None of our arguments are about that, about saying that the police did anything illegal, their interrogation of Karen. Our argument about the interrogation is that all of this new research is something that should be brought to the jury. So a jury in 2022 or 2023 would know that they should be far more skeptical of the results of this interrogation because the research since Karen's trial has shown that these kind of techniques are especially likely to produce uh, false incriminating statements and so-called compliant false confessions. Thank you, David. I appreciate your input here. I have I have a question, Karen. It's been twenty years. Like, how are you, really? How am I? Yeah. I'm really good. I have managed to live a very good life here, and I have just had some excellent opportunities to have good, good jobs here. I, therapeutic units or therapeutic programs. I was chosen to be a mentor. I was a mentor for two therapeutic units for a total of 10 years about. And just I've had some really good jobs. I've been able to work in my community and go to church in my community and just be a part of the community that I'm in right now and make it work. And I just believe by the grace of God, I He has just given me peace and presented these opportunities for me to be able to do them. 
eager to feel like maybe my life is fulfilled or worth living. I've been able to help a lot of people and they've helped me they've helped me right back, you know. I mean it's, I've been able to one thing, I do a lot of artwork and I love artwork and so I I've had a lot of opportunities in here to do a lot of that for the staff and for the programs that I worked in, and I held two art classes for four years. I've had a really good experience, but you have to make it that way. Things I could get involved in, but I don't. <laughs> Can you tell us more about your artwork? What what medium, um, you know, um, what do you usually draw? Just curious about that part. Well, I started art when I was quite a bit younger, and way before I was married, but it's something that is a hobby for me, basically. I didn't go to school for it, but just, a, you know, a few classes here and there. Anyway, just, I've done artwork all through the years, oil painting, curling and stuff, and then when I had kids, they ended up being too messy. Started with colored pencil, and I just love working with colored pencil, and that has and then my kids were able to do it with me, too, through the years. And um, I worked with a lot of colored pencil, mostly, some ink and whatnot. But, yeah, I just, the opportunity I had to have classes, art classes with the young ladies at the therapeutic unit was just amazing for me. So been an interesting, interesting trip here, <laughs> you know, and I can't say it's been all great years like that, but for the most part, overall it is. My first three years that I was here, I was in mourning. I don't remember my first three years here, and I have little glimpses of a couple things, but basically my mind is turned off to that morning time that I had when I first got here. Then I snapped out of it and started living again. Do you you get to see friends and and family and loved ones um, often, or or how often do you get to see them? Since the COVID thing, I haven't seen anybody, except for U of M comes quite often, and the producer of the Netflix documentary, she comes, and but my friends aren't. It's been pretty well cut off, but now they're starting to do some video visiting stuff. But yeah, I have. I talk to my girlfriends all the time. Talk to my friends probably at least once a week, and write to a lot of people. You know that I just and communication with a lot of people that are in support of me. It's good to know that people do believe in me. That's been tremendous all in itself. To know that the people at U of M really believe faith and the people working there. That has been just a lifesaver for me as far as keeping my head above water, as far as that I'm okay, you know, and believing in myself. A lot of women here don't have that kind of support, and there are more women here that are like me that are not supposed to be here. And I just have been very fortunate to have a lot of people on my side out in the community. I've had mentors most of my life, and I haven't done a good job of telling them how much they've meant to me. So your mentees could also be in the same boat. They just know how much your words and your advice have meant to them, but we forget to tell the people that we're grateful for. Yeah, we do. We all do, don't we? Yeah. That's a good reminder. Good reminder to me. Maybe I'll write some notes tomorrow and (laughs) get them out in the mail to the people that are in support of me. The two programs that I was involved in, I do want to mention that. The first one, I was uh, hired as a mentor for four years, and that was called RSAT, and that was Substance Abuse Programs. It's been a lot of good there for me, too, and 
just to have that constant awareness and having to teach it to other people about substance abuse and getting living a life of sobriety just been so helpful for me too through the years. And the other program that I was a mentor of was DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. You probably heard of that Yeah, before. yeah, that's mm-hmm, pretty so, popular. So I kind of taught that for like, well, over four years, about five years. So, and that's where I was able to do the artwork. And like you said, it's therapy all in itself. So it's really a, but both things have of great benefit to me as well. So. Well, I really appreciate that so much. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, We really appreciate it. Um, You know, anything really that that we want to help in any way we can. That's that's what we're about. So we do. We do. Thank you, Karen. And for all that you're doing and for all your mentoring and also for speaking to us. We would like to thank Karen Boost for taking the time to speak with us about her personal story. We would also like to thank the Innocence Clinic of the University of Michigan Law School for arranging our phone conversation with Karen and working out all the logistics. They're doing a great job in representing Karen. And I think we're going to keep tabs on this one to see where it goes. We will have resources about Karen's case in the show notes. And any updates on Karen's case, we will definitely be posting about them. So check out social media and our website for any of those updates. And if you're not caught up with season two, make sure to check us out. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.